This is episode 18 of For All Time. It's a podcast. Let's see. Today we're going to be reading a couple things. Let me see what I can start with here. Perfect. Domino's new CEO lands promotion amid challenges. This is by Heather Haddon. Domino's Pizza Inc. is promoting its chief executive officer to chief... 
excuse me, chief operating officer to chief executive as the chain struggles with staffing and equipment shortages that are hurting its ability to deliver pizzas and build new U.S. stores. Rich Allison, the company's CEO for the past four years, will step down from his role at the end of April, the company said Tuesday. Russell Wiener, Domino's operating chief, will succeed Mr. Allison as the global pizza giant's head on May 1st. Mr. Wiener will stand down for election to the company's board at its annual shareholder meeting, which is scheduled for April 26th. Mr. Allison, who first joined the company in 2011, is credited with helping Domino's grow its sales and helping to keep the company's profit margins intact by refusing to pay third-party services to handle its pizzas. Domino's also gained sales during the pandemic when customers were sheltered in place and ordering more pizza from home. Now Domino's faces competition as its cases attributed to uh, COVID-19 Omicron variant fall and local governments drop masking and proof of vaccine requirements for businesses such as restaurants. Industry data has shown that consumers dine out more when COVID-19-related restrictions ease. Domino's U.S. same-store sales rose 1%, In the three months, it ended January 2nd, missing analysts' expectations. The company said demand remains strong, though executives said the chain is no longer benefiting from federal stimulus checks that Americans received last year. A number of restaurant chains credited the stimulus payments with fueling sales last year. The Ann Arbor, Michigan company's shares ended flat after falling 7% in a pre-market trading Tuesday. Domino's said that it had serious difficulty staffing stores during the quarter, particularly among delivery drivers. The shortages hurt the ability for Domino's restaurants to deliver pizza to customers, executives said. The chain said it is reviewing how to make its delivery jobs more attractive, including by keeping its drivers on the road, earning tips for more of their shifts. The company said it is having drivers fold fewer pizza boxes, saving labor hours. We believe that delivery driver staffing may remain a significant challenge, Mr. Allison told investors. Delays in getting new equipment inspections and new workers also hurt Domino's ability to open new stores during the quarter, the company said. Domino said it expects it could continue to face delays this year in opening new stores. To help offset growing costs, Domino's is changing its longtime promotion, allowing customers to get two value items for $5.99 each. The chain said it will start to charge $6.99 for each item when ordered for delivery, which is more expensive to handle than when customers pick up orders at stores. The value items will remain $5.99 each for carryout orders. Mr. Allison said that Mr. Wiener will continue to play a key role in updating the company's menu and advertising, as he has done since joining the company as its chief marketing officer in 2008. Donro separately named Sandeep Reddy, currently of the chief Uh, currently the chief financial officer of Six Flags Entertainment, as its next CFO, effective April 1st. Domino's will also transition board member David Brandon to a newly created post of executive chairman, effective May 1st. Domino's reported adjusted earnings of $4.25 a share for for the most recent quarter, behind analysts' average estimate of $4.28 a share, according to FactSet. Revenue fell 1% from a year earlier to $1.34 billion globally. That was by Kimberly Chin in today's Wall Street Journal. And you may have noticed that I've read a number of articles specifically about pizza companies um, and their financials because... um, 
I think that it reveals many slices of what's happening in the economy all at once. It's, a, it's an interesting little packet of information all in one article. All right. I don't even know how to start with this. I was reading the New York Post. Let's see. It was last month, the end of last month, the 27th. And I noticed this article. And it said, it was just this. You had one job. A Florida drawbridge operator was fired when he raised a Palm Beach County passage with an automobile on it. The car remarkably slid safely onto the main road at the bottom of the bridge, and the driver emerged unscathed, if, if perplexed. The near disaster happened in October, but officials released the video only this week. And now, I'm thinking back, as I'm reading this, after I finished, I was like, where, where have I heard this? recently and I thought it was even the same article at first um, and I had preserved it specifically to read on the show but now let me pull this up here we go okay here it is This was on February 7th. Florida cyclist plummets to her death when drawbridge opens. An elderly woman fell to her death this weekend when a Florida drawbridge opened while she was crossing it with her bicycle, authorities said. The woman, who had yet to be formally identified as of midday Monday, had been walking her bicycle across the Royal Park Bridge from Palm Beach into downtown West Palm Beach on Sunday, West Palm Beach police said. She was within 10 feet of the drawbridge's barrier arms that halt traffic when it started to rise, police told the Palm Beach Post. The woman tried to hang on, police spokesman, uh, spokesman Mike Jackals said. A man on the other side of the span quickly grabbed onto the woman's arms, but couldn't keep his grip, Jackals said. He tried to help her, but he wasn't able to hold on to her, and she fell about five to six stories below, Jackals said. At some point, it opened. The circumstances around that are under investigation by detectives. The woman, who died on impact, landed on the concrete below the bridge, Jackals told WPTV. The fatal incident shut down the span for hours before it was reopened at about 7 p.m. Sunday. The victim was a, quote, older woman, possibly from West Palm Beach. Uh, later, I learned she was 79, Jackals told WPBF. She did not have an ID with her, and investigators were still working to identify her Monday afternoon. Um, people in cars, as well as the female bridge tender, excuse me, I'll back up. The bridge tender, whose actions prior to the span opening will be the focus of the probe, was, quote, distraught after the woman's death, Jackal said. People in cars, as well as the female bridge tender, witnessed the woman's fatal fall. Jackal said the bridge tender was obviously very upset but he declined to elaborate on what she told detectives. The drawbridge is maintained by the state's Department of Transportation, but a private state contractor employs the bridge's tenders, according to the Palm Beach Post. The Royal Park Bridge is trafficked heavily by bicyclists, according to local safety ad advocates. Palm Beach is accessible only through three bridges, and this is the main bridge, so it is very used by cyclists, advocate Juan Oriana told WPTV. 
The span has clearly visible barriers and uses bells to alert people when it's about to open, he said. For one thing, you will hear the bell and before the alarms go down, so when you hear the bell, you got to get up out of the way before the bridge, is, uh, the bridge opens up. Oriana told the station. The company contracted by state transportation officials to employ the bridge tenders on the span is a firm named Florida Drawbridge, WPBF reported. It didn't respond to a request for comment, the station reported. There are crossing arms, Jackals told WPBF of the Royal Park Bridge. There are warning signs, and there are safety procedures in place for the bridge tenders to follow, with multiple steps and multiple layers of checking to make sure that there are no cars or people on the bridge when it goes up. It is unclear whether the woman crossed the drawbridge after the standard safety precautions were taken, Jackal said. A review of surveillance footage is expected to be part of an ongoing probe. Here's an update. The family of Carol Wright is calling for accountability after she fell to her death from a drawbridge that opened as she was crossing with her bike. The family of Carol Wright is advocating for her uh alleging that the bridge tender was quote negligent and did not even do the bare minimum to check the bridge before raising it okay florida keys drawbridge along us1 stuck in open position after boat hits power lines September 7th. A drawbridge in the Florida Keys was struck in the open position after a boat hit power lines Saturday night. The disabled Snake Creek Bridge caused a busy Labor Day weekend traffic along the US-1, the only highway that runs up and down the 120-mile Long Island chain, Long Island chain, to back up for at least half an hour. The vessel hit the power lines at about 8 p.m., according to Monroe County Sheriff's Office. The Bascule Bridge is located at mile marker 86 in Isla Morada, uh, and it lowered shortly before 9 p.m., and traffic was reopened in both directions, according to the Sheriff's Office. Stick with me here. Okay. Well, you didn't need to stick with me for that. <laughs> I got lost in the sauce there. But let me tell you about this. Here's my own version. Well, can't call it that. How about I just call it Cargo Ship with Pricey Cars Sinks by William Boston. Berlin. A cargo ship that caught fire last month with thousands of luxury vehicles on board sank Tuesday, the ship's management company said. Mall Ship Management Singapore, PTE Limited, which... Uh, owns the company that operates the ship, said that the Felicity Ace sank around 9 a.m. local time, about 220 nautical miles off Portugal's Azores Islands, after it began to take on water and tilt. The Panama-flagged 60,000-ton merchant ship carrying around 4,000 luxury cars, including models from Porsche, Bentley, Audi, Lamborghini, and other Volkswagen AG brands, caught fire in February and burned for days. 
Smit Salvage, the Dutch company charged with salvaging the ship, sent a team of large ocean-going tugboats to the scene and was towing the vessel to safety when it sank. Salvage crews and the Portuguese Navy had said the intensity of the fire might be explained by a large number of electric vehicles on board. The Felicity Ace fire was one of the first on a major vehicle carrier loaded with a substantial cargo of electric vehicles. The incident sparked debate among insurers and regulators about how to safely transport such vehicles. While the cause of the fire on the Felicity Ace might not might never be known because the ship is lying at the bottom of the ocean, experts say there is a danger that batteries in electric cars can short-circuit and catch fire. That would mean that precautions not relevant for conventional vehicles might have to be taken during transport, regulators said. After the blaze stopped, Volkswagen said it had expected that large parts of nearly 4,000 vehicles from several group brands were so damaged in the ship fire that they could no longer be delivered. Volkswagen declined to comment on the cargo's value. Incident insurance experts Russell Group Limited estimated the cargo on cargo on board the Felicity Ace was worth about $438 million, of which the cars on board accounted for about $401 million. Russell estimated that Volkswagen could face losses of at least $155 million. I apologize for that long break before. I'm not going to cut it out. I hope you chose something cool to think about for that moment. All right. Here we go. I'm going to crack into uh, today's 50 states just a little bit here. Alaska. Anchorage. A man walking on a shoreline wound up clinging to a chunk of ice for over half an hour in frigid water when shoreline ice broke loose and carried him into Cook Inlet. He's fine. Don't worry about it. Oregon. Salem. Maps that establish no drone zones at state parks and on the coast would be created under a plan being finalized by the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. Something that Iceland had already done by 2015, in fact. Miami Beach, Florida. A 75-year-old driver likely won't face criminal charges after crashing her Bentley into a sidewalk cafe, killing a man and injuring eight others, police said. Chicago, Illinois. The Adler Planetarium will open Friday for the first time since the start of the pandemic. It's lovely. It's a lovely place. You should go. Albuquerque, New Mexico. The state Supreme Court determined Tuesday that a rule allowing private landowners to limit access to streams and rivers is unconstitutional and contrary to state statute. That's been a long issue for a long time. They should, uh, I hope they're celebrating that cause. Columbus, Ohio. The state celebrated its 219th birthday Thursday, or excuse me, Tuesday, in a state house commemoration. So uh, I guess that's the one they put on the slowest day. They just put the state's birthday on the 50 states if there's just nothing to say about that state. I'm going to look for that one over and over again. All right. Here's a little piece um, interview with one Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, not ready to say goodbye to Saul or life. Barbara Vandenberg, USA Today, uh, yesterday's issue. Bob Odenkirk has a lot to be grateful for. He's alive, for one thing, after a heart attack last July that saw Twitter turn into a collective prayer vigil while awaiting news of his recovery. But even if his ticket had been punched, he'd still have been one lucky dude, judging by his new memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama. Random House, 304 pages, out Tuesday. 
I have a copy coming. It's not every man gets to work with the greatest comedic talents of his generation to become a beloved fringe sketch comedian with HBO cult classic Mr. Show and then a four-time Emmy-nominated actor for a career-redefining role as Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul Goodman, in ABC's AMC's Breaking Bad and its spin-off series Better Call Saul. It's kind of crazy. It's one of the reasons to write the book, Odenkirk tells USA Today. His memoir makes for an interesting career retrospective, considering his career is still very much in full swing, with Odenkirk fresh off turning into an action film star in last year's Bloody Nobody, and heading into the sixth and final season of Saul, premiering April 18th, Mondays at 9 Eastern Pacific Time. The way Odenkirk writes it, his success was as much a result of dumb luck as hard work. And for all of Odenkirk's talent, what quickly becomes clear reading his memoir is that no man is an island, especially not in Hollywood. The list of world-class comedic talents he has worked with is staggering. David Cross, Conan O'Brien, Jack Black, Ben Stiller, Judd Apatow, Janine Garofalo, uh, notably missing from the list is uh, Chris Farley, actually. Um... And just a few of the names dropped in Odenkirk's book as the ex- uh, hmm. as the examples of the arc of his blessed career. Famous typed. The book is overflowing with gratitude for talented colleagues and twists of fate that turned the middle-class suburban kid with daddy issues from Naperville, Illinois, into a serious and seriously good dramatic actor. Sometimes, when people give me too much credit for my career of the things I've been a part of, I suggest that maybe I'm a little more Forrest Gump than I am this operative element in all this wonderful stuff, Odenkirk says. I'm a guy who just happened to be in the picture frame at the same time. I love that. I love that sentiment. Okay. There we go. Crank that gain. As he playfully wrote in his book, it takes an expletive village, so make more friends than enemies. It takes a fucking village. I'm going to assume. It takes a GD village. No memory of the heart attack or the week that followed. Comedy, 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 drama is often a very funny read, but it's also easy to see how Odenkirk's sometimes mordant, self-deprecating humor could have a more mournful tone had he not recovered from the heart attack that felled him on the set of page 3D. Further proof that I'm holding actual newspapers. Can't make that up. Better call Saul last year. Hmm. I'm sure that made sense if you're listening. Odenkirk is open to talking about his experience in part out of a desire to dispel COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, which spread online in the wake, I actually forgot about this, in the wake of his heart attack. Some people thought that the vaccine is what gave me a heart attack, which is insane and stupid and gross, Odenkirk says. The last thing I want is to be fodder for their lunatic guesswork hypotheses. Odenkirk says he knew as early as 2018 that he had plaque a plaque buildup in his, quote, Widowmaker artery, but that conflicting advice from two doctors persuaded him to not start medication right away. Quote, The reason I even went to a second doctor was the first doctor was not very forthcoming, Odenkirk says. He wouldn't consult about it. He wouldn't talk about the medication. He wouldn't talk about my condition. He was a person who, from my estimation, was tired of being a doctor. Odenkirk says that while he was told of the outpouring of love online at the time of his heart attack, he missed it completely. 
Quote, I don't have any memory from the first week and a half, he says. I don't remember being in the hospital at all. Sleazy Saul Goodman revived a career. Fast-talking scam artist and billboard lawyer Saul Goodman sweet-talked his way into Odenkirk's life at exactly the right time. Odenkirk was in a professional rough patch when Breaking Bad script crossed his desk in 2009 at the end of a string of misfires and missed opportunities. Years earlier, he had auditioned for and just missed out, he was told, on getting the part of Michael Scott in NBC's remake of The Office, which went to Steve Carell. Then came a succession of box office bombs with Odenkirk behind the camera for broad comedies. Let's Go to Prison, 2006, and The Brothers Solomon in 2007. A sloppy rehearsal got him canned from a part on Will and Grace. He was struggling financially and had taken out a loan to keep the roof over his family's head when he was given a script for a show he had never seen. He called to a friend to ask if he had ever seen Breaking Bad. His reaction helped seal the deal. Are you kidding me? Breaking Bad is the best show on TV. You've got to say yes. Odenkirk's expectations were low. Saul seemed as if he might be a retread of a character that he played before, namely Stevie Grant, an obnoxious agent on HBO's The Larry Sanders Show. Plus, Saul was meant to stick around for only a handful of episodes, but something clicked when filming started. Odenkirk writes that after Saul's first scenes were filmed, a crew member on set shouted, Can I get a job on the spinoff? And everybody laughed, Odenkirk writes. I did not think Saul was special in Breaking Bad, Odenkirk says of his now signature character. But like any good bottom feeder, Saul stuck around and survived the meth labs and mayhem of Breaking Bad. As the series wrapped, the idea of a Saul-fronted spinoff suddenly wasn't so laughable. Still, when creators Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould approached Odenkirk with the offer, he was skeptical of Saul's appeal as a protagonist. Quote, The first thing I said to Peter and Vince is you've got to make him likable if you want to write a show about him, because I don't think that he was likable. I thought that they'd be insulted because I knew they liked the character, but they weren't. They understood what I meant, Odenkirk says. I did grow to like him a lot more than when I started. Odenkirk grew close to Saul, uh, that he isn't quite ready to let go of the why, uh, hmm, Odenkirk grew close enough to Saul that he isn't quite ready to let go of the wisecracking Lausch with a heart of very tarnished gold, though filming wrapped in early February. Yeah, that sounds about right. I haven't said goodbye to him. It's going to take me a couple months to realize that's ended. It's just strange, Odenkirk says, without giving anything away. The ending is awesome. The journey and where it went to is very satisfying to me. Asked if there's any project he wishes readers of the book would go back and reassess. He's quick to answer Girlfriend's Day, a 2017 Netflix film close to Odenkirk's heart in which he plays a down-on-his-luck greeting card writer embroiled in a noir-like scheme. Uh, which I haven't seen, but is only, I believe, around like 80, 85 minutes, so probably worth a watch, I would say. He, it's his recommendation. So The character is a variation on what Odenkirk plays so well a charismatic, sad sack kicked in the shins by life one too many times. Nobody loves Girlfriend's Day as much as I do, Odenkirk says. I do think more people would like it if they took a chance and saw it. They don't even know it exists. (laughs) In fact, I'll say it the right way. They don't even know it exists! Something like that. Four-time nominee for Better Call Saul for the Golden Globes. I met him briefly once. He was very, uh, very nice. He even took the card I was shoving in his hand. 
<laughs> I don't I don't know why. I wouldn't do that, probably. Um uh, let's see. Here's a quick article with something I do want to follow up on as well. UN weighs treaty to fight plastic pollution. This is uh Tuesday's it's a Tuesday AP story from a local paper. Body aims to settle on a global solution from the AP. Written by Wanjohi Kabukuru, Nairobi, Kenya. Delegates from the United Nations member countries are considering proposals for a blinding, uh, binding global treaty to curb plastic pollution. The UN Environmental Assembly, meeting February 28th to March 2nd in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, is expected to propose an international framework to address the growing problem of plastic waste in the world's oceans, rivers, and landscape. Quote, For the first time in history, we are seeing unprecedented global momentum to tackle the plague of plastic pollution, said UN Environmental Program Executive Director Inger Anderson. During preparations for the season, Anderson implored member states to take the opportunity to reshape humanity's, quote, relationship with plastic once and for all by developing a comprehensive global agreement to combat the problem. Two major proposals have emerged during years of international discussions about ways to reduce single-use plastic. The first, by Peru and Rwanda, calls for a full-spectrum approach to plastic pollution covering a raw materials extraction, plastic production, as well as plastic use and disposal. It urges creation of a, quote, international and legally binding agreement to prevent and reduce plastic pollution in the environment. The proposal is co-sponsored by Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Guinea, Kenya, Madagascar, Norway, the Philippines, Senegal, which uh, is the uh, subject of the other article I'm going to get to here in a sec, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and Uganda, along with the European Union. A second proposal, sponsored by Japan, calls for an international agreement to, quote, address the marine plastic uh, pollution covering the whole life cycle and promoting resource efficiency and circular economy, including reuse. The key difference is that Japan's approach concentrates on marine plastic pollution, while the Peru-Rwanda proposal covers plastic pollution in all environments. Both proposals envision the establishment of a negotiating committee to complete the new plastic treaty by 2024. If such plastics treaty is endorsed by the UN Environment Assembly, Anderson said it will be the most significant global environmental governance decision since the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. Hang on to the the Senegal thing. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to pull that out just right now, but keep that in mind. That story connected to Senegal. First, though, mm, yeah. Teenager takes on tracking tycoons' jets and Putin's by Ginger Adams Otis. Jack Sweeney, the Florida teenager who garnered attention for tracking the private jet of Tesla Inc. chief executive Elon Musk, is now publicizing the movements of planes owned by Russian oligarchs and aircraft associated with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mr. Sweeney, 19, said he made the new Twitter bots at RU Oligarchs Jets and at Putin Jet. 
Oh, Putin jet. Over the weekend after Russia invaded Ukraine. Even before this war started, people were saying to me, oh, you should track Putin, he said on Tuesday. Once the Russian attacks began, he got messages from online followers urging him to focus on the country's oligarchs. The freshman at the University of Central Florida has made a hobby out of following the private aircraft of billionaires and some celebrities. His new Twitter bots, focused on Russia, use the same technology as the one that tracks the jet Mr. Sweeney believes is owned by Mr. Musk, he said. Mr. Sweeney's hobby garnered national attention after he said Mr. Musk personally reached out to him on Twitter asking that he shut down at Elon Jet, which publicly shares the movements of the Tesla executive's plane. Mr. Sweeney's bots rely on public data from train, uh, plane transponders that log longitude, latitude, and altitude and calcu- calculate location based on an algorithm he created in 2020. His RU oligarch jets account has amassed more than 175,000 followers as of Tuesday afternoon. The bot tracking planes that might be used by Mr. Putin had more than 30,000 followers. I don't think he'll be leaving the country right now, Mr. Sweeney said. Mr. Sweeney's bot follows planes owned by Roman Abramovich, the oligarch owner of England's Chelsea Football Club, as well as the aircraft owned by Leonid Mikkelsen, head of Novatech. Russia's largest private natural gas company, and Alisher Usamanov, who, cite, who is often cited as Russia's, Russia's richest man. Mr. Usamanov now is on the European Union sanctions list of 26 Russian officials and their businessmen freezing their assets and imposing travel bans. Some oligarchs in recent days have distanced themselves from Mr. Putin, Mr. Sweeney said he is still tracking Tesla's CEO and reiterated that he could take uh, the account down in exchange for a new Tesla Model 3. Hmm. 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 He said he has no desire to gain anything from the accounts targeting Mr. Putin and the oligarchs. I definitely think we should not be at war, he said. We should be, be, uh, we should be more peaceful. Hmm. Okay. One more. And then we're going to take a look in a book. Showing a new way of looking at Venus. And I suggest you go look up a photo of this. Um, I'm sure it's freely available. It's by Kenneth Chang. Uh, Google the Parker Solar Probe. I bet you'll find what I'm looking at. The Parker Solar Probe, probe captured images of glowing red The Parker Solar Probe captured images of a glowing red surface during flybys. Venus is so hot that its surface glows visibly at night through its thick clouds. That is what pictures taken by NASA's Parker Solar Probe have revealed. The planet's average temperature hovers around 860 degrees Fahrenheit, and thick clouds of sulfuric acid obscure the view. Until now, the only photographs of the Venusian surface were taken by four Soviet spacecraft that successfully landed there in the 1970s and 80s, operating briefly before succumbing to the hellish environs. During flybys of Venus, the Parker spacecraft pointed its cameras at the night side of Venus. It was able to see the visible wavelengths of light, including the reddish colors on the verge of infrared that can pass through the clouds. It is a new way of looking at Venus that we've never even tried before. In fact, we weren't even sure it was possible, said Lori Glaze, director of NASA's planetary division. 
In the Parker photographs, hotter locales, like low-lying volcanic plains, appeared brighter, while those at higher altitudes, like the Aphrodite Terra, one of three continent-sized regions on Venus, were about 85 degrees cooler and darker. It's like you're heating up a piece of iron, said Brian Wood, a, a physicist at the Naval Research Laboratory at Washington. In the and the lead author of a study published last month in Geophysical Research Letters that described the findings. Oh, man, I would love to read Geophysical Research Letters. It starts to glow a little bit at the very red wavelengths. And so that's what we're seeing. The surface of Venus growing at very red wavelengths because it's so hot. The photographs also showed a halo of luminescent oxygen in the atmosphere. Quote, we've been able to take these really, really beautiful, stunning images, said Nicola Fox, the director of NASA's heliophysics division. For Dr. Wood and other scientists working on the mission, the research was a crash course in planetary science. I've never studied planets, Dr. Wood said. We're all solar physicists. We're experts on the sun, not planets. As its name indicates, the mission of the Parker Solar Probe is to probe the sun withstanding searing temperatures as it dives through the sun's outer atmosphere. By design, the trajectory of the Parker spacecraft makes several close flybys of Venus using the planet's gravity as a brake to allow it to get closer and closer to the sun. The single-camera instrument known as the Wide Field Imager for Parker Solar Probe, or WISPR, W-I-S-P-R, is not designed to look directly at the sun, which is far too bright, especially at the close distances. Rather, Whisper peers to the side at charged particles known as the solar wind that emanate from the sun at a million miles per hour. That's a lot of miles per hour. Before the launch of the Parker Solar Probe in 2018, Dr. Glaze and Dr. Fox, then the project scientist for the mission, discussed the possibility of turning the instruments during the Venus flybys. But no firm plans were made until after the launch, and the Parker probe was operating smoothly. Quote, that was just because of safety concerns, Dr. Fox said. Until you're up in orbit, you don't really know how your spacecraft flies. Oh, that's good. You never know how that's going to fly. Designed to capture dim solar wind particles, Whisper turned out to be adept at making the faint glow on Venus's night side. It took a bit of trial and error to figure that out. In July 2020, on the first flyby where the camera was turned on, the scientists found out that if any part of the day side of Venus were in the field of view, the picture turned out to be much too overexposed. We didn't really know what we were doing, Dr. Wood said. We quickly learned that that leads to a completely unusable image. But there were two images of just the night side. Those are the images that are revealed to us. Wow, okay, so now we're seeing something, Dr. Wood said. Dr. Wood noted a historical symmetry to his Venus findings. In 1962, the very first successful interplanetary probe, NASA's Mariner 2 mission to Venus, confirmed the existence of the solar wind. That was a prediction of Eugene Parker, an astrophysicist who is the namesake of the mission he now works on. Wow. I just find it fascinating that this connection between Venus research and solar wind research has been there from the beginning, Dr. Wood said. Beautiful images. Go look them up. Very cool. All right. And now I'm just going to take a quick little break here. Well, you're going to take a break. So am I. As I queue up my selection of uh, books we have prepared for you. Until then, uh, let's see. You're going to enjoy 
more of this.
All right. Perfect. Thank you for coming back. Hope you enjoyed um, your thoughts while we were away. All right. So this is from a book I've been cracking into lately. It's called True Story by Danielle J. Lindemann. Seems like uh, I'll say it is a non. It's a hmm. It is reality TV extracted, um, extrapolated, completely torn apart, and analyzed from the perspective of a sociologist. But I would also say that on top of that, it is also from the perspective of a a fan, a deep fan of. Um, reality television, as such as as am I, and 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 should not we all be? I think. And this book is really all about that. It's about how everyone and anyone should be a fan of reality television and reality productions because they are really the ultimate form of entertainment and the true revelation of everything is on display. Even though it may seem manufactured and manufactured as it may be, it is still really and truly the ultimate form of entertainment in one way or another. Anyway, I leave you to ponder that as I read from you. Uh, Let's see. Part two, chapter six. I question your taste level. Class. This is a section that is essentially analyzing. um, Well, I think you'll get it. This first time we meet Alana's family, they're throwing paper towel rolls at one another. Six-year-old Alana is a competitor in the Precious Moments pageant and featured a child on Toddlers and Tiaras. Her family has amassed a large quantity of paper towels because her mother buys things in bulk, introducing herself as the Coupon Queen. Mama June explains that, all told, pageants have cost them about $8,000 to $9,000. Quote, but that's okay because I've saved it all with my coupons. On the inaugural episode of their spin-off show, Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, which focuses on Alana, Mama June, and the rest of the nuclear family, they attend an event called the Redneck Games. Mama June describes the games as, quote, similar to the Olympics, but with a lot of missing teeth and a lot of butt cracks showing. End quote. There, they bob for pig feet and compete in the Mud Pit Belly Flop. Quote, Mud Pit Belly flop, unquote. Mud pit belly flop. I like to get in the mud because I like to get dirty like a pig, Alana tells us. God bless her. Everywhere in the episode, they're farting. (laughs) I'm going to repeat. Elsewhere in the episode, they're farting audibly, washing their hair in the kitchen sink and eating cheese balls for breakfast out of a communal jar. Alana lifts up her shirt and shows her stomach. Chub, folding it into a mouth and making it, quote, talk to the camera. On the one hand, reality TV may not seem like great fodder for a rumination on class inequality in America. The tone of these shows is often light, and they extend to focus on individual behavior without overtly contextualizing it within broader structural processes. 
Generally, as the media scholar June Deere has observed, if reality programs touch on issues such as social inequality at all, it is only briefly or in order for individualized and apolitical solutions to proceed. And if the genre does not show us the full spectrum of class in America, we rarely see the very poor, for instance. When the real world's Julie spends time with the homeless or the Kardashians volunteer at a soup kitchen, the poor are ancillary to and serve to mainly shed light on the thoughts and feelings of the central characters. On the other hand, reality TV reveals yeah, reality TV reveals a wider spectrum of class positions than some other forms of media. Some have argued, for instance, that working class people are more visible within the reality genre than on scripted TV. From southern rednecks to Manhattan millionaires, reality TV casts a searchlight across large swaths of socioeconomic terrain. In doing so, it reveals the tenacity of class, a monetary category that isn't just that. It shows us what class is, what it means to us, and how we buffer our class system using a set of relatively rigid, ingrained assumptions about what's right, normal, and good. Class. It's about the money, honey. Few would disagree that social class is related to how much money, once, uh, how much money one has. Writing in the mid-1800s, for instance, Karl Marx defined class as a group of people who share the same material circumstances. While acknowledging various uh, gradations within these central categories, he pointed to two primary social classes that exist under capitalism, the bourgeoisie, who control the means of production, and the proletariat, the worker bees. The proletariat perform the manual labor that is essential for a capitalist industrial society, while the bourgeoisie disproportionately profit from that labor. Marx and his co-author, Friedrich Engels, conceptualize history writ large as the story of conflict between groups fighting over limited economic resources. Indeed, Marx suggested that any kind of struggle, political, religious, etc., essentially could be distilled to a class conflict. Marx's two class categories careen into view in Undercover Boss, <laughs> as Street Fight listeners may know, CBS 2010 to present. On the show, high-level executives go incognito to find out what's really happening during the everyday operations of their companies. In one episode, the every, uh, Rick Silva, the president and CEO of Checkers and Rallies, poses as a trainee at the restaurants. <laughs> the show emphasizes the class divide nearly as soon as it begins. Scenes of a suit-clad Rick sitting at a desk and shuffling papers are interspersed with shots of his employers frying up burgers and passing them through the drive-up drive window into outstretched hands. While both Rick and his employees work, it is clear that they perform the manual labor and that his share of the profits is much larger. The show crystallizes this distinction on this and many episodes by revealing the boss's ineptitude at the physical tasks required by the low-level jobs in his own operation. Here, Rick nearly burns some burgers and struggles to work a cash register in an intercom. The fundamental distinction, both within Marx's theory and on our undercover boss, is monetary. The main chasm here is between the CEO and his workers on the line, who are of varied genders and races, but who are all subordinate to him within the class hierarchy. In having the boss pose as a worker bee, the show reveals forms of labor that are often obscured. It's this obfuscation, Marx argues, that allows for the oppression of workers to go unchecked. He discusses 
uh, commodity fetishism, which doesn't mean uh, just that we love to buy stuff, although we do, see below, but it is the idea that we don't tend to think about the things that we buy in terms of the social relationships that have created them. The whole chain top to bottom. Since we, as consumers, are separated from the labor process, the relationship that is central to our minds is between each item and our money. And then, we take for granted that apples just are, inherently, $1.32 apiece, without thinking about the human dynamics that make that so. Yet, Undercover Boss exposes these dynamics. While the show doesn't reveal exploitation per se, which would be terrible PR for these companies, it does show us the hierarchies of labor and the power relations enmeshed within them. At one point, for instance, a manager of one of the restaurants speaks harshly to his workers. Rick takes aside one of the employers, or excuse me, one of the employees, Todd, and asks him why he puts up with his treatment. I couldn't work there for 10 minutes, Rick says. I would never let someone talk to me like that. It's my job, Todd replies. I do it because I need to help my mom. Rick suggests that they talk to the manager. I don't think so, Todd repeats several times, shaking his head. I need my job by any means necessary. Ultimately, Rick does speak to the manager because he really is the boss, and he is empowered to do so. The scene highlights the different experiences that Rick and Todd have of the world, not just because Rick makes more money, but because of the privileges that, the, that accompany the money, including social respect and the ability to make choices. Notably, when Rick discloses that he is the CEO, the manager immediately begins speaking to him more respectfully. But we're still entertaining people. People in the higher classes, like Rick, have more money, but as Marx and Undercover Boss demonstrate, this is not necessarily because the work that these people do has inherently higher value. Yes, Rick and Todd are in very different types of jobs that necessitate different levels of education and skill. Still, that doesn't mean that labor requiring a college degree is more important to the actual functioning of society, though we may try to tell ourselves that. For Marx and Engels, ideology is not something that stems organically from each of our individual brains. Rather, it is born from our social relationships and functions as an instrument of power. We sustain the current arrangement of power when we interpret work that involves manual labor as less important. The classical sociologist Max Weber takes the related point that engagement in physical labor tends to disqualify one from status. He gives the example of artistic work that's more labor-like, such as masonry, being lower status than artistic practice that's less labor-like, such as oil painting or podcasting. While we can likely think of all exceptions to this rule, for example, professional athletes, it's still generally true that our most esteemed work is more intellectual than physical, and vice versa. Indeed, some of our most highly compensated work is not the work that's crucial to the functioning of society. For instance, if we look at the list of professions that people view as the most prestigious, food preparer doesn't even make the cut. Yet, food preparers literally hold our lives in their hands daily, as we discover a new, uh, a new each time there's an E. coli scare. During the height of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, the People deemed essential to our infrastructure included relatively low-paid grocery store stockers, delivery people, and sanitation workers, not just those, uh, not those in jobs like Rick's. Within our capitalist system, the objective importance of one's work is not necessarily aligned with compensation, and Rick and Todd, as Rick and Todd show us. 
In a different way, the Kardashians teach us this as well. The fact that this brood has been so compensated so handily, despite their ostensible lack of talent, has clearly ruffled some feathers. I would say that they actually have incredible talent, but it's, 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 uh, it's not uh, easily perceived. In 2011, Barbara Walters interviewed Chris, Courtney, Kim, and Chloe, as the family was on her 10 most fascinating people list for that year, a list that included Steve Jobs, Pippa Middleton, and a reality host turned future president, Donald Trump. You're often described as famous for being famous, Barbara Walters said, stated bluntly, addressing the four women. You don't really act, you don't sing, you don't dance, and you don't have any, forgive me, any talent. That's fucking rough. Jeez. Several of the women nodded in response to the comment. But we're still entertaining people, Chloe replied. Perfect. I'm glad that Chloe replied in that situation. That was her time to shine. As this interview suggests, a common critique of reality stars is that they don't do anything to warrant their stardom. Of course, there are expectations, such as the contestants, on skill-based competition shows or programs featuring stars who are already famous for having recognizable talents, such as singing, acting, or comedy. But for the most part, reality TV participants seem to rise in stature by simply being. But in this sense, reality stars aren't showing us anything new. They're showing us something old. In 1867, Marx drew a distinction between, quote, use value and exchange value, a distinction that may be used, for instance, to demonstrate why gold is more expensive than water. Water has higher use value than gold because we need it to survive. Yet gold has a higher exchange value than water because even though it's a hunk of metal that serves virtually no inherent function, it's a universal currency. Weber, writing in the early 1900s, made a related argument, observing that the most highly esteemed occupations were not necessarily the ones that garnered the highest wages and vice versa. If we aligned prestige and compensation, Weber argued, society would look very different. Indeed, research suggests that even today, the job categories that people view as most prestigious, for example, firefighters and clergy, are not necessarily the highest paying and the other way around as well. So while it may chafe us that Kylie Jenner earns a million dollars per Instagram post, there's precedent for this. Even the concepts of, quote, skill and talent, though, are social constructions, presuming excellence at tasks are, uh, are, that are socially valued. I can wiggle each ear independently, which I think is pretty special, but I've never earned a cent for it. Until you wrote it into this book, I guess. Of course, this all presumes that the Kardashian-Jenners don't have any type of marketable skill or talent, which, to be clear, is not a foregone conclusion. These women, and maybe Rob, have managed to parlay a sex tape into international stardom. At some point, in some form, perhaps even Chris's expert momaging or Kylie's keen sense of consumer trends, it is reasonable to believe they did something to hasten their ascent. But whether these particular reality stars just fell upward or made shrewd decisions, they made shrewd decisions, um, and they're brilliant, or some combination of the two, it's all of the above, it's not unique or contemporary that they get paid handsomely for something that many people think is worthless. They simply reveal how our conceptions of talent, money, and social worth were never connected to one another in straightforward ways in the first place. From rat pits to ratchet? In part because in part because objective value, status, and compensation are misaligned, we have to tell ourselves stories justifying our class system. Job hierarchies become prestigious hierarchies as we interpret certain types of work, and consequently certain types of people, as legitimate, valuable, and morally correct. Reality TV, with its emphasis on archetypes and difference, amplifies these ty typologies. 
The sociologist Patricia Hill Collins uses the term controlling images to refer to media's stereotypical portrayals of marginalized groups, which she argues serve to normalize the power structure and allow us to view facets of culture, such as racism and sexism, as natural and inevitable. This brings us back to Honey Boo Boo. In Alana's family, we see controlling images that uh, legitimize, uh, legitimate the class system. Though there is some debate within the family about whether they're actually, they actually qualify as, quote, rednecks. We all still have our own teeth, don't we? The dad says. The show repeatedly emphasizes their stereotypical Southern hick qualities. Their grammar is creative, and they intersperse their sentences with words not found in Merriam-Webster as they offer medical advice, like, quote, if you fart 12 to 15 times a day, you could lose a lot of weight. Notably, the show also includes their bodily emanations, rather than editing them out. But, again, this isn't anything new. We've been wringing enjoyment from lower-class stereotypes for hundreds of years. In the next chapter, we'll see how minstrel shows historically caricatured black people. But here, it's important to note that they satirized poor white rubes as well. Rubes in quotes. As a sociologist, Jennifer Elena had explained the idea of respectable people being entertained by demonstrations of working class or poor lifestyles is as old as the bourgeoisie is as a class. For instance, she describes how beginning in the 1800s, slumming parties, in quotes, in London and New York brought upper class white people into poor and immigrant urban areas. These trips allowed elites to participate in activities such as, quote, rat pit gambling, that is betting on how long it would take a terrier to kill a rat in a hole in the ground. All right. Quote, why, uh, when elites slum, Lena said, uh, both then and today, lower class culture is enjoyed as a commodity, and the experience of consumption is designed to satisfy and thrill without too much discomfort, which kind of reminds me of the impulse feeding reaction loop that is uh, the gambling machines we were just speaking of, which hopefully you enjoyed. It's hardly a stretch to draw a line from the rat pits of yore to the weave-pulling and mud-pit-belly-flopping ratchet fair of today. While critics panned Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, it was one of the most popular programs on TLC during the time it aired. In 2013, Deadline reported that the show had ended its season in the number one spot for its time slot among, quote, ad-supported cable networks and virtually all key demos. Were all of those viewers, quote, slumming when they watched Honey Boo Boo? Maybe not. It's plausible that some people watch because they personally identify with the characters and or because they found them likable or even aspirational as everyday working class people turn TV stars. Still, these type of programs arguably also attract viewers because they enable us to slum. For instance, perhaps there was a reason that the reality-adjacent Tiger King, Netflix 2020, became so popular during the early days of the coronavirus epi- uh, pandemic. Part of that reason likely had to do with the show's many riveting plot twists. Did Carol Baskin really feed her husband's corpse to tigers? I still don't know what to believe. But perhaps seeing the working class criminality and buffoonery on the show also allowed us to think less about or explain away the fact that many low-wage, quote, essential workers were being placed at daily risk for COVID-19. Meanwhile, the more privileged among us were able to work safely from home with the luxury in our downtime to get sucked into the world of Joe Exotic. Indeed, research has shown that middle-class viewers who watch and enjoy reality TV are able to hold it, quote, at a distance, 
emphasizing the us-them distinction. One city of teens in England, for instance, found that some of these young people reaffirmed their own middle-class statuses by, quote, positioning themselves as TV critics <laughs> and expressing, quote, disgust at working-class participants on reality programs. This dovetails with the idea that we can receive a voyeuristic pleasure from reality TV. There we go. Here Comes Honey Boo Boo teaches us that we may want to visit the rat pit to remind ourselves that we are not part of the rat pit. Just as slumming parties ultimately bolstered elite senses of their own superiority and reinforced class boundaries, and middle-class viewers today are able to use these programs to symbolically distance themselves from working-class culture and working-class people. All that vajiggle-jaggle is not butomus. Yep, butomus. All that vajiggle-jaggle is not butomus. In order for us to accept the class system, we have to naturalize the class system. We have to believe that people are where they are for reasons that are inherent to the ob and objective. Exactly. Here Comes Honey Boo Boo demonstrates how we do this by showing us how we think about bodies and how we think about class and how those two things are intertwined in the American imagination. The family's fatness is not lost on viewers. Critics and fans alike have made it a central part of their commentary. Virtually every initial review of the show mentioned in it is mentioned it in some way. For example, a review of the show in the AV Club referred to Alana's, quote, overweight, heavy-lidded, coupon queen Mother June, and Time Magazine observed that the show is, quote, less like toddlers and tiaras than it is a reality show version of The Fatties, Fart 2. Okay, quite a quote. Indeed, in the first episode, Mama June vaguely breaks the fourth wall by referring to the viewer's nickname for her from Toddlers and Tiaras stint, Jabba the Hutt. The program implicitly strings together the family's round bodies, their class status, and their outrageous behavior. The first time weight is mentioned is in episode one, it is at the Redneck Games. Here, the focus is not on the central clan, but on the reaction to the participants. We see shots of various attendees, their flesh drooping over their minimal clothing, and Mama June and her daughters are critical of the physiques on display. Quote, her body has eaten the bikini, Mama June says of one large woman. In a testimonial, she advises, quote, women are, that are of voluptuous size to cover themselves up. All that vajiggle-jaggle is not butamous, she opines. Later in the episode, the focus shifts to the family members themselves. They discuss the prospect of losing weight as they sit on couches, munching on cheese balls from the ubiquitous shared jar. Mama June agrees to participate in a family weight loss challenge, though she is ambivalent of the goal. At one point in the episode, she says she is happy with her body. At another, that she'd ideally lose 100 pounds. By presenting fat bodies initially at the Redneck Games, here comes Honey Boo Boo almost immediately contextualized fatness within a particular class category. Indeed, female thinness has become something of a privilege marker. Small and top bodies translate into embodied capital. Bordeaux's term for existential wealth converted into an integral part of, excuse me, external wealth converted into an integral part of the person. Yes, uh, that completely lines up. Wow. I'll repeat that one more time. Small and top bodies translate into, quote, embodied capital. Bordeaux's term for the external wealth converted into an integral part of the person. Yeah, you're essentially investing time and money capital into your body, proving externally that you are superior in one way or another. I thought about that for a while. This becomes evident in fashion markets. High-end boutiques, for instance, seldom carry plus sizes, while cheaper mass retailers such as Walmart do. It's quite telling that the income uh, from Here Comes Honey Boo Boo began rolling in 
as it began rolling in, Mama June underwent weight loss surgery and sloughed off those 100 pounds. Emerging from her chrysalis on her spinoff show, Mama June, from not to hot, We TV, 2017 and 2020. In 2020, as the main characters went through a variety of personal and legal struggles, the show was rebooted as Mama June, Family Crisis. Okay. As the title, Not Too Hot, bluntly states, in the contemporary United States, fatness is socially undesirable. So, it's not always, uh, mm, no, it's not always undesirable. We might point to putative counterexamples, such as Kim Kardashian's round derriere, or racial-slash-ethnic differences in the acceptability of thick bodies, or the existence of arguably fat-positive media, including TLC's own reality show, My Big Fat Fabulous Life, 2015 to present. Which bodies we consider to be, quote, fat, and how we interpret that fatness has also changed over time. But in general, today, within dominant American culture, fat bodies are generally presented as socially problematic. They're also often presented as signs of individual failings. The sociologist Amanda Zirniowski has observed that we stereotype fatness as defect, a symbol of gluttonous obsessions, unmanaged desires, and moral and physical decay. The fat body is one that is out of control and takes up too much space, a failed body project. These controlling images of fat are rife with moralistic innuendos that place blame on the internal, uh, on the individual and ignore culture's impact. Indeed, the controlling images on Here Comes Honey Boo Boo suggest that this family's bodies, like its behavior, cannot be contained. Guts tumbling over pants, belches escaping from mouths, farts escaping from asses, bodies exploding with impulses. This family is just spilling out in every sense. Mama June and her offspring show us how lower class status and fatness are culturally aligned, and how we convert both into moral categories, and how we lay them at the feet of individuals. Of course, the individual members of the Boo Boo clan, the adults at least, do have some ability to control what they put into their mouths. Mama June feeds her daughter sugary foods, including, quote, go-go juice, a mixture of Red Bull and Mountain Dew, to keep her on high alert for pageants. And there's the cheese ball jar. But by presenting these individual decisions as just individual decisions made by out-of-control people without interrogating the broader mechanics of food production, marketing, and distribution, or underlying inequalities in the educational system, Here Comes Honey Boo Boo obscures the large-scale social dynamics that have helped move the go-go juice to Alana's lips. And therein, therein, there motherfucking in, this author cracks everything wide open. The biggest questions that we need to be asking today on any subject is why, 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 why. Every single motherfucking thing, if you ask why enough and you go back far enough, you're going to get the answer to that question that you're actually asking. You're actually going to be able to find the answer for yourself. But I digress severely. Mama June and her offspring show us how lower class status and fatness are culturally aligned and how we convert both into moral categories, etc. When we look at here comes Honey Boo Boo to catch up. As a slumming adventure, we can see the types of cultural mechanisms that we use to normalize class hierarchies. Portraying this clan as lazy and impulsive and not that bright, the show contributes to a narrative that naturalizes the class structure as correct and appropriate. And it's far from the only reality show to do this. The entire subgenre of makeover TV reminds us what bodies we perceive as acceptable and good. On the, and which ones we don't, I would add. On these shows and in our lives, our bodies are understood not simply as collections of cells that exist neutrally in the world. They can be evaluated and altered accordingly. On Dr. Pimple Popper, TLC 2018 to present, for instance, the dermatologist and YouTube sensation that Dr. Sandra Lee remedies extreme 
uh, and YouTube sensation Dr. Sandra Lee remedies extreme skin conditions. While over on Botched E, 2014 to present, Drs. Terry Dubrow and Paul Massif, for both formerly of Housewives shows, remedy the mistakes of prior plastic surgeons via additional plastic surgery. These shows, quote, fix their participants in ways that sustain existing class hierarchies. Transformational television is like other types of reality TV in that it promotes middle-class norms of fitness, thinness, and goodness, as we've seen on Super Nanny with the, other, uh, with the mother who tamed her disobedient children by scaling back on her work hours. Sometimes these remedies also presume access to middle-class or higher resources. Competition programs regularly frame failure as a product of laziness, lack of grit, lack of seriousness, or lack of talent, rather than a lack of resources. On RuPaul's Drag Race, Logo 2019 and 2016, and VH1 2017 and present, for example, success on the runway hinges on having fabulous garments. The judges often attribute contestants' deficiencies to their lack of polish or failures of imagination, rather than the thinness of their wallets. In makeover shows such as What Not to Wear, TLC 2003-2013 and 2020-present, on which hosts Stacey London and Clinton Kelly fix the wardrobes of supposed fashion victims, sometimes offer cost-prohibitive advice, such as urging viewers to have their clothes tailored. The culture scholar Brenda R. Weber has argued that these types of programs endeavor to produce the, quote, perfect citizen. That is, quote, one whose insides and outsides are in perfect alignment, one whose female or male body evokes appropriate gender and sex information, and one who is not glaringly marked as raced or working class. These shows thus link together unruly bodies, lower class status, and moral failure. Similarly, when Honey Boo Boo displays its clan speaking unintelligently and behaving impulsively, it suggests that they're responsible for both their corpulence and their own social position, and rather than consider too deeply the structural realities of that position, our appropriate response is to sit back smugly and watch. And I would also add that um, I'm not exactly a fashion expert, although I'm trying to you know, become one. I would add that um, I would say you could apply this last... Um, paragraph or so of thinking on terms of uh, creating a class invisible structure in in terms of fashion I think uh, like athleisure and workout wear has created a kind of a classless zone in terms of um, I don't know classless or classed zone it's, it's kind of confusing anyway I question your taste level Shows like Honey Boo Boo teach us how monetary distinctions ultimately become moral distinctions, as we put our bodies and behaviors into class categories and interpret them as good or bad. We further reinforce the class hierarchy by maintaining hierarchies of taste. Recall that, for Marx, a class is a group of people who stare at the same material who share the same material conditions. Building on that theory, Berdu argued that a class is actually a collection of things. It includes people who have similar amounts of money, but also who share the same habits, practices, and internalized understandings of the world, which reminds me very much of the harbinger uh, indicators in um, society. It's almost like the, the, the study that found the harbinger uh, group that uh, can make or kill any product uh, may have been theorized in that... Uh, in that paper. I'd have to look that up as well. Bordeaux observed that when it comes to our cultural preferences, we have the illusion of spontaneous generation. That is, while we tend to think taste is random and highly individualized, it is a socialized component. 
Indeed, he found that our preferences in such things as music and cuisine are highly aligned with socioeconomic class. In particular, there is lowbrow culture, and there is highbrow culture, and elites are socialized to enjoy the latter. For example, it's telling, but also probably not surprising, to viewers that the Boo Boo clan attends the Redneck Games and not the opera. These distinctions matter, Bordeaux argues, because taste then becomes a signifier of social status and a form of shared culture that helps to coalesce those within the same class. Mix it well. Uh, elite tastes become a form of capital that facilitates the transmission of social status from one generation to another, thus maintaining the class structure. Consequently, certain tastes are connected with certain class positions and hierarchy is created. It's not just that the opera and the redneck games say are different pastimes, it's that one becomes codified as more high class and subsequently more socially valued than the other. These types of hierarchies and their social importance come to life on Project Runway, Bravo 2004 to 2008 and 2019 to present, Lifetime 2009 to 2017. On the show, aspiring fashion designers compete in a series of challenges. In each episode, they construct garments that models wear during a runway show and then receive commentary about their work from a panel of judges. Nina Garcia, the fashion journalist and editor who had become one of the judges on the show since its inception, invokes the designer's taste level so often that I question your taste level has become her catchphrase and a meme. On one example... On one episode, for example, the contestants must create clothing with video game heroines in mind. Judge Brandon Maxwell tells one of the designers, Venny, regarding his female savior outfit with feathered cuffs. It's not that you don't know how to make clothes, what you do not know is how to restrain yourself in that process. Nina agrees. One challenge, you can produce something beautiful and tasteful, and the next challenge, you present us with this. From head to toe, it's a disaster. Later, when the judges examine Venny's garment up close, Nina reiterates, he really missed out on the fantasy here. And then, on the reality, there's a taste level issue that is concerning. Here, as in the case of Honey Boo Boo, lacking class and taste is associated with lacking control over oneself. This is a common theme on Project Runway, as overuse of feathers is an excessive and, beda- and excessive bedazzling are interpreted as an inability to rein in one's designs. Instead, designers are expected to hit the sweet spot of being restrained without being dull. The very concept of a, quote, taste level, and indeed the whole premise of the show, also suggests that our fashion preferences aren't just personal and arbitrary, rather, there is some objective, tiered index, by which they can be evaluated. And the judges often conform to this taste hierarchy. Hmm. The judges often confirm that this taste hierarchy is aligned with economics. On a different episode from that same season, for instance, Nina helped heaps praise on one of the designs. In evaluating Tessa's garment, she comments, quote, This look does not look like a $250 look. There is a pause, dramatic music swells, and she adds, This looks expensive. This is luxe. Good, good, the designer says, looking relieved. Later, when Tessa is announced as the winner of the challenge, Nina proclaims, it felt like any of us judges could be wearing that. This looks expensive is a common compliment on the show across judges and across seasons. Here, Nina specifically links that compliment to people in her own class category for whom $250 might be seen as relatively cheap. She thus illuminates spectra of taste, economics, and social value in the interrelation among the three. 
These interconnected hierarchies don't appear just on reality TV, but pervade our lives. For instance, they're baked into the English language. In evaluative terms such as cheap and classy, Project Runway teaches us how we all conceptualize certain types of material culture as tasteful or trashy, expensive or cheap, good or bad, worthwhile or not, right or wrong, and in doing so, we implicitly reinforce class boundaries. Caviar Dreams Nina Garcia shows us the flip side of what we can see on Honey Boo Boo. If we view the lower classes as morally compromised and responsible for the predicament, then for the rich, it must be the opposite. By demonstrating how we equate class privilege with legitimacy and happiness, some reality shows about wealthy people also illustrate how we normalize the class hierarchy. Why do we perceive wealth as good? One might argue that it's only natural to crave nice things, to want to live in the greatest comfort possible, and to feel the urge to telegraph our success to our neighbors like a peacock fanning its tail. Say on Twitter. Yet to some extent, these impulses are a particular product of Western capitalism. Tracing the origins of our capitalist system, Max Weber has argued that we can locate its roots in late 1800s Protestantism. At that time, financial success in the present life became seen as a marker for one that was destined for greatness, and in the afterlife as well. Thus germinated the Protestant ethic, love that Protestant ethic, in which people are inspired to work hard and accumulate money to demonstrate that they are among the chosen. The ethic wasn't the sole catalyst for capitalism, but it did contribute to the spirit of capitalism. In some Christian megachurches, we still see the ideology of wealth both as a goal and a side of God's blessing. Yes, you want to make sure you're planting those financial seeds, those spiritual seeds. Uh, and even though most of us today are not working hard to demonstrate our fitness in the afterlife, we're still fanning out those peacock plumes of money to demonstrate our legitimacy. Yes, we are still tithing, except uh, we're all tithing. Uh, those who tithe, tithe, and those who tithe perhaps also do the thing that we all other do, which is uh, constantly tithe with our time and effort and uh, investing in tricking all the people around us into thinking that we're better people than we really are. Under capitalism, to have things becomes a goal in and of itself. The concept of modern-day consumerism, as a sociologist Dalton Conley explains, refers more than to just bullying merchandise or buying merchandise in this case, it refers to the belief that happiness and fulfillment can be achieved through the acquisition of material possessions. Consumerist ideologies take effect on television programs such as the reality-adjacent Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. On the show, which ran on CBS for more than a decade, from 1984 to 1995, host Robin Leach, with co-host Sherry Belafonte, toward the end of the show's run, swept viewers along on journeys through the homes of the wealthy, ending each episode with his signature tagline, Champagne Wishes and Caviar Dreams. More recently, VH1's The Fabulous Life of 2003 to 2013 similarly gave us a glimpse into celebrity lives, specifically focusing on various forms of luxury consumption. Might I add that on the list of people that they covered on that show included one Jeffrey Epstein. Even a show, and which you can go Google, uh, uh, The Fabulous Life of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and you'll find it. Even a show such as The Girls Next Door was aspirational in its portrayal of money and privilege. Heff's three central girlfriends during the majority of the series... Actually, hold on one second. Uh, 
can take a trip, we're taking a trip to the internet. You gotta hang with me while we get this up. You gotta read this thing, you gotta listen to this. Here it comes. Okay. A must for a billionaire is owning a jet, ready to go anywhere at any time. You don't want to be a billionaire having to wait in line at the airport. It's Roman and Abramovich. Pack your bag, get on a plane at any time. Pretty sure he's currently facing sanctions. Fly around in a private jet. That's the way you and I commute to work. And the billionaire staple Skyride. It's one of the speediest things on two wings. The super fast, super fly Gulfstream. Billionaires purchase Gulfstream jets because they want to get someplace in a hurry. They're sleek, they're modern. So many billionaires have their own Gulfstream. Oprah has one, Larry Ellison has one. It's the ultimate status symbol. Just ask internet billionaire Mark Cuban. He bought this state-of-the-art Gulfstream G550 in 2005 for $42 million. Most people have an easy chair or a favorite chair at home. This is my favorite chair. Right here on the jet where I can just kick back and just do whatever. Where most people are worrying about everything that, that might come up, I'm flying somewhere fun. I'm on my way to Flying somewhere fun. You know, if I get a wild hair and... We want to go to dinner in New York or L.A. Great. Cuban's Gulfstream G550 has a full-time pilot, wood imported from the Ivory Coast, 24-karat gold cup holders, and state-of-the-art technology. Say they are technology. All customized to Mark's specifications. Oh, he's got some nice good specs, too. Having billions of dollars and that you get to do what you want. Let's do it. It's not exactly fabulous. Mm -hmm. Worthy clip from Epp and Higgins. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. We're just going to um We're gonna to take a little break. And I wanna come up with what I had for you right here. Hang on. himself an entire schoolhouse and transformed it into the largest single the, residence in all of Manhattan this is said show at a whopping 51,000 square feet oh, 
Now, what do you need a commercial-size airliner for? Believe us, it comes in handy when you've got powerful friends to fly around. <laughs> Showing a picture of Clinton. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that existed. Oh, under capitalism, to have things becomes a goal in and of itself. The ca uh, concept of modern-day consumerism, the sociologist Dalton Conley explains, refers to more than just buying merchandise. It refers to the belief that happiness and fulfillment can be achieved through the acquisition of material possessions. Consumerist ideologies take effect when television programs such as the reality-adjacent Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous on the show, which ran on CBS for more than a decade, 1984-1995. Host Robin Leach with co-host Sherry Belafonte toward the end of the show's run. Swept viewers. And there we go. More recently, VH1's The Fabulous Life of 2003 to 2013 similarly gave us a glimpse into celebrity lives, specifically focusing on their various forms of luxury consumption. And there's many episodes like that. There was like uh, one for Bill Gates and, you know, all the folks you'd expect. Even a show such as The Girls Next Door was an aspirational in its... Let's cut that back. There we go. Okay. Even a show such as The Girls Next Door was an aspirational in its portrayal of money and privilege. Hef's three central girlfriends during the majority of the series, Holly, Bridget, and Kendra, are all platinum blonde, conventionally attractive and decades younger than the elderly Hef. Their bodies are offered to us, not only as objects of ridicule, as in Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, but as sites of sensuality. Further though, Honey Boo Boo, but uh, further though, the show has received critiques related to sexuality, gender roles, and its participants' values. Its tone is not derisive. The women live in a mansion, receive lavish gifts, and go on exciting adventures. They're presented as sexually desirable and happy, ensconced within a thrilling world of celebrity and privilege. Glamorous music plays when Hef enters the room, and these uh, these hmm. they are presented as sexually desirable and happy ensconced within a thrilling world of celebrity and privilege. Glamorous music plays within uh, when Hef enters the room. These types of series reveal our zeal for consumption and our desire to gawk at the slick lives of the rich and our tendency to conceptualize wealth, material possessions, and contentment, all as part of the same package. And I would argue that that central thesis is also key to um, most of Kanye's music from start to finish as well in his career. Not only his analysis of that, but his flipping on its head in every other direction. All right, hope you can hear those birds. Okay. And I think that's where we're going to break off for today. We're going to come back to that because I, I think that reality TV has a lot to expose on that subject. Next up, we are going to etiquette. Cracking the Emily Post, going to page 237, Emily Post etiquette, 19th edition, manners for today. Published, I believe this is 2015, so you know it's a little date, a little out of date, but I think it still makes a little bit of sense. The etiquette of electronic communications is constantly evolving as new portals, capabilities, and ways of interacting and forming communities online are launched. See chapter 30, Life Online. The quest for an etiquette for internet users reminds us that the most th the more things change the more things stay the same whether you're sending an email commenting on a form or writing on a friend's facebook page three key considerations will help you communicate politely and effectively 
Human contact still matters. Don't communicate electronically at the expense of personal interaction. There's a reason people need to discuss things face-to-face, and there are times when no substitute will do. For example, when you're breaking up with your boyfriend or asking your boss for a raise. Watch what you say and how you say it. While electronic devices can bring people together, their impersonal nature can lead to people to write things they wouldn't think of saying in person. Be careful when clicking send. Whatever you say or post in cyberspace cannot be taken back. You have no control over where your message goes once you've hit send. It can be saved and forwarded by any recipient who chooses to do so, and words have come back to hurt people, destroy friendships, and ruin careers. Similarly, once something is on the web, it tends to live forever. And uh, all they had to do, every single person in the world had to do was just read that. Oh, also, your boss owns your email. Any electronic communications produced or received by equipment provided by your company, PC, laptop, or smartphone belongs to the company. Use your own phone or computer for personal communications. There you go. Emily Post knows. Here's a little tip for dating. Once upon a time, he asked her out and then sh- and then paid for everything. She followed his agenda. Males were chivalrous. Females were demure and coy. That was the ideal back in the 1950s when dating was regarded as the first step in a natural progression towards marriage and family. Dating by the rules has given way to a more casual encounters and relationships, and marriage is no longer the immediate objective for all single people. On the other hand, lots of singles complain that it is harder than ever to meet potential partners. Others opt out entirely, saying that their busy careers can't leave time for dating, or don't leave time for the dating rat race. Many are looking for clear-cut standards and expectations, something between the strict dating rules of their grandparents' day and the modern dating scene. Begin with some self-appraisal. Whether you've been dating fairly routinely or you're returning to the dating scene, it's a good idea to take stock of your own attitudes and experiences. Ask yourself how you define a date. Your expectations may have changed over time. For example, the dating customs from high school or college may not be suitable for dating in your late 20s, and those getting back to dating after a number of years out of circulation often need to readjust their thinking. Honestly, appraising your own attitudes and evaluating your past experiences, good and bad, should enable you to be more sensitive to others. Here are some basic guidelines that can help to make any date pleasant for both parties. Treat people as individuals. Stereotypical thinking, all men are afraid of commitment and all women are emotional, is a barrier to successful dating. Be realistic. There's no perfect man or woman, so don't place the bar so high that it's impossible for anyone to leap over it. If you expect every date to be Mr. and Mrs. Right, you're sure to be disappointed. Communicate. Participate in the conversation and be honest and straightforward. A date deserves to know whether or not you want to go out for the sheer fun of it or if your goal is long-term commitment. Show respect. Courteous manners speak volumes about your attitudes towards the people you go out with and your own self-respect. If halfway through your dinner you realize he's not somebody you'll ever want to see again, that's okay, but it's no excuse to spend the rest of the evening ignoring him. And be gracious. There's no reason to make another person feel uncomfortable or inadequate because a date doesn't go as you hoped. When a date turns into a disaster, the blame rarely lies with one person alone. Life online. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, dating, interest groups, gaming. With more people connecting and communicating than ever before, online and social media manners have never been more important. The online world is the new frontier for etiquette. 
As people find each other online in greater and greater numbers, the social expectations that we have in these virtual spaces continue to grow. The good news is that while they sometimes look and feel different, new manners for the online world are based on the same principles of consideration, respect, and honesty that are the basis of all good etiquette. As with in-person interactions, online manners boil down to thinking about other people, making choices that respect others, and operating from a place of honesty and integrity. Treating others well is a golden rule of etiquette, and it absolutely translates online. In fact, it might even be more important online. Cues that indicate humor, sincerity, frustration, or appreciation are often absent. Without the benefit of tone of voice, facial expressions, or other physical signals, it is hard to know the other person's intentions. The nature of communicating online means we have to take extra care with how we represent ourselves and how we choose to communicate with others. As the saying goes, you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar. It certainly applies to online communications. People in the electronic community are no different than the people you encounter face-to-face. If you want them to visit your space and read your content, then treat them positively and politely. Remember, once you put something out there on the internet, it's out there, forever. You can't take it back or undo it. Post a picture of a friend in a compromising situation, and you can't pull it back and pretend it never happened. Post a disparaging remark in the heat of the moment about somebody within an online community, and you can't get it back. You'll have to accept the responsibility of your post. Even if you can recall or delete your post, there's still a good chance that someone else will have seen it and forwarded it. You're not anonymous. It's easy as it is to think that no one knows who you are. Don't believe it for a minute. People think that just because they created a clever username like Don Johnson that their identity is protected. It's no guarantee that their comments, phrasing, or tone won't be recognizable to acquaintances. Everything online is public and permanent. One litmus test for deciding whether to make a comment or post is to ask yourself, if I posted this on a bulletin board for anyone to read, would that be okay? Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, these are all virtual bulletin boards that anyone can access and see. A college graduate should be aware that posts and pictures of vacations and parties on Facebook may well be seen by bosses and prospective employers that can, gain, uh, that can affect attention getting and keeping the job. The same is true for employees whose tweets and blogs malign a company or individual. Assuming that unflattering comments about friends, ex-friends, significant others, exes, or even public figures will not be seen only by the targets themselves, but also by their friends and families. Their opinions on the posts of you, of the posts and you, will be affected. Remember, nothing online is private, and the internet has a perfect memory. Intentionally making or disparaging remarks has no place in personal communications, and it has no place online either. It is simply a matter of expressing your opinion. It is not simply a matter of expressing your opinion, but crafting it to stay on topic and contributing constructively to the conversation. And finally, what you communicate. In any online space that you engage in, you'll want to think about what you feel comfortable contributing. Opinions and thoughts, images, personal photos of friends and loved ones, videos. To the best of your ability to make uh, to the best of your ability, make intentional choices of what you post online. Word choice. Take care that the words you use have meaning. Uh, and that they have the meaning you think they have. Try saying them aloud before you post them. Ask yourself if, if there is any other way these words could be interpreted. Content choice. What type of content you choose to write about and share online is up to you. Maybe you only post political views on message boards and in forums with like-minded users. Maybe use a site like Facebook to engage during election years. It's your choice what content you engage with and where you choose to present it. 
images. The images, photos, videos, illustrations, and memes you choose to post will definitely have an effect on your image. So consider carefully who might see them and how they could be interpreted before you like, share, and post anything. And uh, I'll end it there. There's, there's lots of subjects in this book that are um, wild and insane, but I just think that that's a particularly interesting one. And now I'm going to flick to a little bit of music for a second. We have one more segment, and then we'll wrap it up. Let's see here. People who have very deep dreams, dream is a great source of the spirit. And uh, then people who in the woods have had mystical encounters. Well, let me, let me try to be specific about it. The shaman becomes some person in, in a society who is drawn by experience from the normal world into the world of the gifted. Driving in reverse, not looking when I'm backing out. It's like getting on the plane with no wings, standing in the land of the men that has no kings. I hear my gun talk, I hear my coke sing. Get the money, nigga. Go ahead and murder them. Fuck it, you never heard of them. Imagine what I'm hurdling. I'm taking long jumps, I wonder what the Lord wants. I wanna know before they hit me with the long pump. These cocksucking niggas can't touch me, but I feel lucky. Cause I hear the angels sing when I blow the dushy Ayo, hey, love <laughs> fuck life, two guns up I let them bust twice Damn, buck them down, that's that mediation Back on with the flow, so sick of the rap I'll never be that free, we wasting All time on TV chasing That BET or MTV dream See me waiting, spitting that BDP and meditating Matter of fact, I still wanna blow coke I still wanna roll with the popo I don't wanna be a play, but I wanna be around Say no joke, and I won't choke And it won't be the bands, it won't be the friends The moment you go, I'll float up in the end I'll make my entrance, make my exit, make that record spin Back on my 76 and damn Right Philly, we walk with a bop And won't stop on top of the land Right that's manifest destiny Had a wounded knee It don't make no sense to me I'm in the whip with a dime piece Puffing on trees To believe these extra sensories Yo, you lose a dealer You losing a Godzilla He's still alive on the track And the big playback I heard him next to me Catch the beat Spit that ecstasy Ever since I got put on the extra P Had a vision I was sitting in a bar Full of women And they all wanna be What's left of me Yeah
write them rhymes to change their minds on my records, records And I get a paycheck just to pay that rent until we stack it Cheddar, life still ain't better, man I'm still on stage with a hand rap, better win Better make a move now when it all falls down I'll be that ooh-wop veteran That's not so bad, not so easy to have Battle rapping a verse but still wanna make it easy to grab Wanna be that Polo Rican, I'll be forever geeking City sleeping, ever since 86 everything in the right's gonna be forever speaking Every weekend's a blur, every night's automatic Better roll from the past through that I got truth and beauty all about it Everything we touch is gold, everything I see is bright Every day I'm one step closer to the end, it might as well be night Chapter 1. Call Me Marvin. The buzzer on Marvin Schwartz's desk, dictaphone, makes a noise. The William Morris agent... The buzzer on Martin Schwartz's desk, dictaphone, makes a noise. The William Morris agent's finger finds the lever down on the box. Is that my 1030 you're buzzing me about, Miss Himmelstein? Yes, it is, Mr. Schwartz, the secretary's voice pipes out of the tiny speaker. Mr. Dalton is waiting outside. Marvin pushes down the lever again. I'm ready when you are, Miss Himmelstein. When the door to Marvin's office opens, his young secretary, Miss Himmelstein, steps in first. She's a 21-year-old woman of the hippie persuasion. She sports a white miniskirt that shows off her long, tan legs and wears her long, brown hair in Pocahontas-style pigtails that hang down each side of her head. The handsome 42-year-old actor, Rick Dalton, and his de rigueur, glistening, wet, brown pompadour follow behind her. Marvin's smile grows wide as he stands up from the chair behind his desk. Miss Himmelstein tries to do the introductions, but Marvin cuts her off. Miss Himmelstein, since I just finished watching a Rick Dalton fucking film festival, no need to introduce the man to me. Marvin crosses the distance between them, sticking out his hand for the cowboy actor to shake. Put her there, Rick. Rick smiles and gives the agent's hand a big pumping shake. Rick Dalton, thank you so very much, Mr. Schwartz, for taking the time to meet me. Marvin corrects him. It's Schwartz, not Schwartz. Jesus Christ, I'm fucking this whole thing up already, Rick thinks. God damn it to hell. I'm sorry about that, Mr. Schwartz. As Mr. Schwartz does a final shake of the hand, he says, call me Marvin. Marvin, call me Rick. Rick. They let go of each other's hand. Can Miss Hamilton get you a tasty beverage? Rick waves the offer away. No, I'm fine. Marvin insists. Are you sure? Nothing? Coffee? Coke? Pepsi? Simba? All right, Rick says. Maybe a cup of coffee. Good. Clapping the actor on his shoulder, Marvin turns to his young girl Friday. Miss Himmelstein, would you be so as kind to get my friend Rick here a cup of coffee, and I'll have one myself. 
The young lady nods her head in affirmative and crosses the length of the office. As she starts to close in on the door behind her, Marvin yells at her. Oh, and none of that Maxwell House r- r- rot gut they got in the break room. Go to Rex's office, Marvin instructs. He's always got the classiest coffee. But none of that Turkish shit, Marvin warns. Yes, sir, Mrs. Himmelstein answers, then turns to Rick. How do you like your coffee, Mr. Dalton? Rick turns to her and says, haven't you heard? Black is beautiful. Marvin lets out a klaxon-like guffaw, and Miss Himmelstein covers her mouth with her hand as she giggles. But before his secretary can close the door behind her, Marvin yells out, Oh, and Miss Himmelstein, short of my wife and kids dead on the highway, hold all my calls. In fact, my wife and kids are dead. Well, that'll... (laughs) If my wife and kids are dead, well, they'll all be just as dead 30 minutes from now, so hold all my calls. The agent gestures for the actor to sit on one of the two leather sofas that face each other. A glass-top coffee table is in between, and Rick makes himself comfortable. First things first, the agent says. I send you greetings from my wife, Maris, uh, Mary Alice Schwartz. We had a Rick Dalton double feature in our screening room last night. Wow, that's both flattering and embarrassing, Rick says. What do you see? Film prints of Tanner and the 14 fifths of McCluskey. Well, two of them are the good ones. Uh, t- <laughs> Them are the two of the good ones, Rick says. McCluskey was directed by Paul Wincos. He's my favorite of all directors. He made Gidget. I was supposed to be in that. Tommy Laughlin got my part. But then, magnanimously, he waves it away. But it's okay. I like Tommy. He got me in the first big play I ever did. Really, Marvin asks? You've done a lot of theater? Not much, he says. I got bored doing the same shit again and again. So Paul Wincos is your favorite director, huh? Marvin asks. Yeah, I started out with him in my early days. I'm in his Cliss Robertson picture, Battle of the Coral Sea. You can see me and Tommy Laughlin hanging out in the back of the submarine, the whole damn picture. <laughs> Marvin makes one of his deli- <laughs> declarative industry statements. Paul fucking Wencos, underrated action specialist. Very true, Rick agrees. And when I landed Bounty Law, he came on and directed about seven or eight episodes. So Risk Rick asks... Fishing for a compliment. I hope Rick Dalton double feature wasn't too painful for you in the misses. Marvin laughs. Painful? Stop. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Marvin continues. So Mary Alice and I watched Tanner. Mary Alice doesn't like the violence in modern movies these days, so I asked McCluskey to watch him by myself. I saved McCluskey to watch by myself after she went to bed. There's a small tap at the office door just before the miniskirt-wearing Miss Himmelstein enters the office carrying two cups of steaming coffee for Rick and Marvin. She carefully hands the hot beverages to the two gentlemen. This is from Rex's desk, right? Rex said you owe him one of your cigars. The agent snorts. That cheap Jew bastard, the only thing I love about him, I owe him is a hard time. Everybody laughs. Thank you, Miss Hamilstein. That'll be all for now. She exits, leaving the two men alone to discuss the entertainment business, Rick Dalton's career, and more important, his future. Where was I? Martin asks. Oh yeah, violence in modern movies. Mary Alice doesn't like it, but she loves westerns. Always has. We saw your westerns all throughout our courtship. Watching westerns together is one of our favorite things to do, and we thoroughly enjoyed Tanner. Aw, that's nice, Rick says. Now, when we do these double features, Marvin explains, by the last three reels of of the first film, Mary Alice is asleep in my lap. But for Tanner, she made it just... Uh, she made it to just before the last reel, which is at 9.30, which is pretty good for Mary Alice. As Marvin explains to Rick the movie-viewing habits of the happy couple, Rick takes a sip of the hot coffee. 
Hey, that's good, the actor thinks. This Rex Feld really does have classy coffee. <laughs> Marvin continues. Movie's over. She goes to bed. I open up a box of Havana's, pour myself a cognac, and watch the second movie by myself. Rick takes another sip of Rex's delicious coffee. Marvin points at the coffee cup. Good stuff, huh? What? Rick asks. The coffee? No, the pastrami, of course. The coffee. <laughs> no, the pastrami. Of course the coffee, Marvin says with Catskill timing. It's fucking sensational, Rick agrees. Where does he get it? One of these delicatessens in Beverly Hills, but he won't say which one, Marvin says. Then continues with Mary Alice's viewing habits. The morning after breakfast and after I leave for the office, the projectionist Greg comes back and screens the last reel so he can see how the picture ends. And that's just our movie-watching routine. We're very happy about it. And she was very much looking forward to seeing how Tanner ends. Then Marvin adds, however, she's already figured out that you're going to have to kill your father, Ralph Meeker, before it's all over. Well, yeah, that's the problem with the movie, Rick says. It ain't if I kill the domineering patriarch, it's when. And if it ain't Michael Callan, uh, the sensitive brother, kills me, it's when. Marvin agrees. True, but both of us thought you and Ralph Meeker matched up pretty well together. Yeah, me too, Rick replies. We did make a good father and son team. That fucking Michael Callan looked like he was adopted. But <laughs> with me, you could believe that Ralph was my old man. Well, the reason you matched up so well together is because the two of you shared a similar dialect, Rick laughs. Especially when compared to fucking Michael Callan, who sounded like he should be surfing in Malibu. Only Marvin thinks that's the second uh, time Rick has put down his Tanner co-star Michael Callan. That's not a good sign. It suggests stinginess in spirit. It suggests a blamer. But Marvin keeps these thoughts to himself. I thought Ralph Meeker was sensational, Rick tells the agent, the best damn actor I ever worked with, and I've worked with Edward G. Robinson. He was also in two of the best bounty laws. Marvin continues recounting his Rick Dalton double feature from the night before. Which brings us to the 14 fists of McCluskey. What a picture. So much fun. He pantomimes shooting a machine gun. All the shooting, all the killing. Marvin asks, how many Nazi bastards do you kill in that picture? A hundred? A hundred and fifty? Rick at laughs. I never counted, but a hundred and fifty sounds right. Marvin curses them to himself. Fucking Nazi bastards. That's you operating the flamethrower, ain't it? You bet your sweet ass it is, Rick says, and that's one shit-fuck-crazy weapon you do not want to be on the wrong side of. Boy, oh boy, let me tell you, I practiced with that dragon three, four hours a day for two weeks. Not just so I'd look good in the picture, but because I was scared shit of the damn thing, to tell you the truth. Extraordinary, says the impressed agent. You know, it was just sheer luck I got that role, Rick tells Marvin. Originally, Fabian had my part. Then eight days before shooting, he breaks his shoulder doing a, vir a Virginian. Mr. Wincrow's remembered me, talked brass over at Columbia into getting Universal to loan me out to do McCluskey. Rick concluded, the story was the way, uh, the story, hmm. Rick concludes the story the way he always does. So I do five movies during my contract with Universal. My most successful film, my Columbia loan out. Marvin removes a gold cigarette case from inside his jacket pocket, pops it open with a ping, offers one to Rick. Care for a Kent? Rick takes one. Do you like this cigarette case? It's very nice. It's a gift from Joseph Cotton, one of my most cherished clients. Rick gives Marvin the impressed expression the agent is demanding. I recently got him both a Sergio Carbucci picture and an Ishiro Honda picture, and this was a token of his gratitude. Those names mean nothing to Rick. As Mr. Schwartz sips the gold cigarette case back into the inside pocket of his jacket, 
Rick quickly dre- digs his cigarette lighter out of his pants pocket, snaps open the lid of the silver Zippo, and lights both smokes in his cool guy way. When he's done lighting both cigarettes, he snaps the lid of the Zippo closed with a loud panache. Marvin chuckles at the show of bravado, then inhales the nicotine. What do you smoke? Marvin asks Rick. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, what do you smoke? Marvin asks Rick. Capital W lights, Rick says, but also Chesterfields, Red Apples, and Don't Laugh, Virginia Slims. Marvin laughs anyway. Hey, I like the taste, is Rick's defense. I'm laughing at you smoking red apples, Marvin explains. That cigarette is a sin against nicotine. They were the sponsor of Bounty Law, so I got used to them. Also, I thought it was smart to be seen smoking them in public. (laughs) Very wise, Marvin says. Now, Rick, Sid's your regular agent, and he asked me what I would do. uh, He asked me, would I meet you? Rick nods his head. Do you know why he asked me to get together with you? To see if you wanted to work with me, Rick asks. Marvin laughs. Well, ultimately, yes. But what I'm getting at is, do you know what we do here at William Morris? Yeah, Rick says. You're an agent. Yeah, but you already got Sid as your agent. And if I was just an agent, you wouldn't be here, Marvin says. Yeah, you're a special agent, Rick says. Indeed, I am, Marvin says. Then pointing at Rick with his smoking cigarette. But I want you to tell me what it is you think I do. Well, Rick says, that was the way it was explained. What it was, the way it was explained to me was you put famous American talent in foreign films. Not bad, Marvin says. Now that the two gentlemen are on the same page, both take big drags off their kents. Marvin exhales a long stream of cigarette smoke and goes into his spiel. Now, Rick, if we get to know one another, one of the first things about me you'll learn is nothing. And I mean nothing is as important to me as my client list. The reason I have the contacts I have in the Italian film industry and the German film industry and the Japanese film industry and the Filipino film industry is because of the clients I represent and what my clients my client list represents. Unlike others, I am not in the has-been business. I'm in the Hollywood royalty business. Van Johnson, Joseph Cotton, Farley Granger, Russ Tambrin, Mel Furrer. The agent says each name as if he's resetting the names of the faces carved on Hollywood's Mount Rushmore. Hollywood royalty with a filmography peppered with all-time classics. The agent gives a legendary example. When a drunk Lee Marvin dropped out of the role of Colonel Mortimer on for a few dollars more, three weeks before filming it, it was me who got Sergio Leone to take his fat ass to the Sportsman's Lodge and have coffee with a newly clean and sober Lee Van Cleef. The agent lets the magnitude of the story settle in the room. Then, taking a nonchalant drag off his Kent, he blows out the smoke and adds another one of his uh, declarative industry statements. And the rest, as they say, is New World Western mythology. Marvin zeroes in on the cowboy actor across the glass table. Now, Rick, Bounty Law was a good show, and you were good in it. A lot of folks come to town to get famous for doing shit. Ask Gardner McKay. Rick laughs at the Gardner McKay dig. Marvin continues, but Bounty Law was a totally decent cowboy show, and you should have, uh, and you have that, and you can be proud of that. But now, on to the future. But before the future, let's get a little history straight. As the two men smoke cigarettes, Marvin begins quizzing Rick as if he's either on a game show or being interrogated by the FBI. So, Bounty Law, that was NBC, right? Yep, NBC. How long? How How long what? How long was the show? Well, It was a half hour, so 23 minutes with commercials. And how long did it last? Well, we started the fall schedule of 59 to 60 television season. And uh, when did you get off the air? Oh, the middle of the 63-64 season. Did you ever go to color? Uh, Didn't make it to color. How do you get the show? You coming off the street or the network groom you? 
I, I had guessed it on Tales of Wells Fargo. I played Jesse James. So what's got their attention? Yes, I still had a screen test. Oh, so that's what got their attention? Yes, and I still had a screen test. And I had a better uh, fucking good. <laughs> and I had better be fucking good. But yes. Go through the details of the movies you did during your hiatus? Well, the first one, Rick says, was Comanche Uprising, starring a very old, very ugly Robert Taylor. But that became a theme in almost all my motion pictures, Rick explains. Old guy paired with young guy. Me and Robert Taylor, me and Stuart Granger, me and Glenn Ford. There was never just me on my own, says the actor, frustrated. It was always just me and some old fuck. (laughs) Marvin asks, who directed Comanche Uprising? Bud Springsteen, Marvin makes an observation. I noted on your resume, you worked with a hell of a lot of those old Republic pictures. Cowboy directors, Springsteen, William Whitney, Harmon Jones, John English. Rick laughs. The get-it-done guys. Then he clarifies, but Bud Springsteen wasn't just a a get-it-done guy. Bud didn't just get it done. Bud was different than those others. That interests Marvin. What was the difference? Huh? Rick asks. Bud and the other get-it-done guys, Marvin asks. What was the difference? Rick doesn't have to think about his answer because he figured this out years ago when guesting on Whirlybirds with Craig Hill, helmed by Bud. Bud had the same amount of time as the rest of those goddamn directors, Rick says with authority. Not one day, not one hour, not one sunset more than anybody else, but it is what he did with that time that made Bud good. Rick says sincerely, you are proud to work for Bud. Marvin likes that. And goddamn Will Wild Bill Whitney gave me my start rick says he gave me my first real part you know a character with a name then he gave me my first lead what film marvin asks oh just one of those juvenile delinquent hot rod flicks for republic rick says marvin asks what was the title drag race no stop says rick and i did a goddamn ron eli tarzan for him just this last year marvin laughs so you two guys go back a long way me and bill rick says you bet Rick's getting into reminiscing, and he sees it's going over well, too, so he leans into it. Let me tell you a little bit about goddamn Bill Whitney, the single most underrated action director in this goddamn town. Bill Whitney didn't just direct action, he invented directing action. You said you like westerns? You know that whole uh, Yamika Cannon action gang where he jumps from horse to horse and then falls and goes under the hooves in John Ford's fucking stagecoach? Marvin nods his head, yes. William fucking Whitney did it fucking first, and one year before John Ford with Yamaka Kalnit. I didn't know that, Marvin says. What picture? He hadn't even made a feature yet, Rick tells him. He did that for that gag for some fucking serial. Let me tell you what it is like being directed by William Whitney. Bill Whitney works under the assumption that there was no scene ever written that couldn't be improved by the addition of a fist fight. Martin laughs. Rick continues, so I'm doing Riverboat with Bill directing, me and Burt Reynolds in the scene, so me and Burt are doing the scene, saying the dialogue, then Bill goes, cut, 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 you guys are putting me to sleep, Burt. When he says that to you, you punch him, and Rick, when he punches you, that makes you so mad, and you punch him back, got it? Okay, action. And so when we do it, and we get it done, he yells, cut. That's it, boys, now we got a scene. The two men laugh inside the cloud of cigarette smoke that's filling up the office. Marvin's starting to warm up to Rick's sense of hard-earned Hollywood experience. So let me tell you about the Stuart Granger film you mentioned, Marvin asks. Tell me. Big game, Rick says. An African great white hunter piece of crap. They were walking out of, walking out of it on airplanes. <laughs> Martin guffaws. 
Rick informs the agent, Stuart Granger was the single biggest prick I ever worked with, and I worked with Jack Lord. After two men chuckle over the Jack Lord dig, Marvin asks the director, and you did a picture with George uh, Cukor? Yeah, Rick says, a real dog called the Chapman Report. Great director, terrible picture. The agent asks, how did you get along with Cukor? Are you kidding? Rick asks, George fucking loved me. Then he leans a bit over the coffee table and says, insinuatingly, in a lower voice, I mean, really love me. The agent smiles, letting the actor know he gets the insinuation. I think it's a thing George does, Rick speculates. He picks a boy on each movie to go gaga over. And just, and on that picture, it was between me and Ephraim Zimbalas Jr. So I guess I won, he goes on to illustrate. So in that picture, all my scenes with Glynis Johns, and we go to a pool, and uh, Glynis is in a one-piece swimsuit, and all you can see is legs and arms, and everything else is covered up. But me, I'm in the teeniest, tiniest pair of swim trunks the sensors will allow. Tan swim trunks. I'm black and white film. It looks like I'm fucking naked. And it's not just a shot of me jumping in the pool. I'm in these tiny trunks doing big dialogue scenes with my ass hanging out. For ten minutes of the fucking movie. I mean, what the fuck am I? Am I Betty Grable? What the fuck? Am I Betty Grable over here? Again, the two men laugh. As Marvin removes a small leather notebook from opposite inside jacket pocket of one containing Joseph Cotton's gold cigarette case. I had a few of my satellites look up your statistics in Europe, and they say, as they say, so far so good. Searching for the notes in the little book, he asks out loud, did Bounty Law air in Europe? He finds the page he's looking for, then looks from uh, the page to Rick. Yes, it did. Good. Rick smiles. Marvin looks back down at the book and says, where? Searching the page and finding the data he's looking for, Italy, good. England, good. Germany, good. No France. But then he looks up and Rick says as consolation, but yes, Belgium. So they know who you are in Italy, England, Germany, and Belgium. Marvin concludes, so that's your TV show. But you've done a few flicks, so how'd they do? Marvin looks back down at the little book in his hands, flipping through the little pages, searching for his contents. Actually, finding what he's looking for, all three of your westerns, Comanche Uprising, Hellfire, Texas, and Tanner, did relatively well in Italy, France, and Germany, looking back up to Rick, with Tanner doing even better than that in France. Can you read French? Marvin asks Rick. No, Rick answers. Too bad, Marvin says as he removes a folded up Xerox page stuck in the little notebook and hands it across the coffee table to Rick. This is the cashier's, uh, cashier's du cinema review of Tanner. It's a good review. Very well written. You should go get it translated. Rick takes the Xerox from Marvin, nodding that, uh, nodding at the agent's suggestion, though the actor knows full well he'll never do that. But then Marvin raises his head to meet Rick's eyes and says suddenly, enthusiastic, But the best news in this whole fucking book, the 14 fists of McCluskey. Rick's face lights up as Marvin continues. Now, in America, that did okay for Columbia when it was released. But in Europe, fuck me. He lowers his head to read the information in front of him. Says here, 14 Fists of McCluskey was a fucking smash all over Europe. Played everywhere and played for fucking ever. Marvin, uh, Marvin looks up, closes his little book, and concludes. So in Europe, they know who you are. They know your TV show. But even more than the guy from Bounty Law in Europe, you're the cool guy with the eye patch and the flamethrower that kills 150 Nazis in the 14 Fists of McCluskey. After making that huge statement, Marvin grinds his Kent out in the ashtray. What was your last theatrical feature? Now, it's Rick's turn to grind out the cigarette in the ashtray as he grunts. A horrible children's movie made for a kitty matinee crowd called Salty the Talking Sea Otter. Marvin smiles. I like it. I take it you're not the, t- the title character? 
Rick smiles grimly at the agent's joke, but nothing about that movie does he find funny. That was the film Universal dumped on me to finish my four-picture contract, Rick explains, which just goes to show how much Universal gave a fuck about me. I remember that prick Jennings Lang selling me a whole bill of goods, luring me over to Universal with a four-picture deal. I had Avco Embassy offering me a deal, National Pictures offering me a deal, Irving Allen Productions offering me a deal. I turned them all down and went with Universal because they were the major, and because Jennings Lang told me Universal wants to be in the Rick Dalton business. After I signed up, I never saw that prick again, referring to the time of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Producer Walter Wagner shot Jennings Lang in the groin for fucking his wife, Joan Bennett. If anybody deserved to get their balls shot off, it was that prick Jennings Lang. Adding bitterly, Universal was never in the Rick Dalton business. Rick picks up his coffee cup and takes a sip. It's gone cold. He puts it back down on the table with a sigh. Marvin continues. So for the last two years, you've been doing guest shots and episodic TV shows? Rick nods his head in the affirmative. Yeah, I'm doing a pilot for CBS right now. Lancer. I'm the heavy. I did a Green Hornet, a Land of the Giants, a Ron Eli Eli Tarzan. The one I mentioned I did with William Whitney. I did that show Bingo Martin with uh, that kid Scott Brown. Rick doesn't like Scott Brown, so when he mentions his name, he subconsciously gives him a dismissive look. And I just finished an FBI for Quinn Martin. Marvin sips his coffee, even though it's gone a little cool. So you've been doing pretty good? I've been working, Rick says as if to clarify. Did you play the bad guy in all those shows? Marvin asks. Not Land of the Giants, but the rest, yeah. Did they all end in fight scenes? Again, not Land of the Giants or the FBI, but the rest, yeah. Now, the $64,000 question, Marvin asks, did you lose the fight? Of course, Rick asks. I'm the heavy. Martin lets out a big, ah, to make his point. That's an old trick pulled by the networks. Take Bingo Martin, for example. So you got a a new guy like Scott Brown and you want to build up his bona fides. You hire a guy from a canceled show to play the heavy. Then at the end of the show, when they fight, it's the hero besting heavy. But then Martin goes on to explain. But what the audience sees is Bingo Martin whipping the guy from Bounty Law's ass. Ouch, thinks Rick. I fucking smarted. But Marvin's not done. Then next week, it's Ron Eli in his loincloth. And the week after that, it's Bob Conrad in his tight pants kicking your ass. Marvin drives his right fist right into the palm of his left, left hand for effect. Another couple of years playing punching bag to every swinging dick to the, to the new, uh, new the network, Marvin explains, is going to have psychological effect on how the audience perceives you. The masculine humiliation of what Marvin's suggesting, even though he's only referring to play acting, is making Rick's brow perspire. I'm a punching bag? Is this my career now? Losing fights this season's new swinging dick? Is that how <laughs> Tris Coffin, star of 26 Men, felt when he lost his fight to me and Bounty Law? Or Kent Taylor? While Rick, while Rick dwells on this, Marvin moves on to another subject. Now, I've had at least four people tell me a story about you, Schwartz starts, but none of them know the whole story. So I want you to tell me, Marvin asks, what's this about you almost playing the McQueen role in The Great Escape? Oh, Christ, not this fucking story again, thinks Rick. Though completely unamused, he laughs it off for Marvin's benefit. It's only a good story for the Sportsman's Lodge crowd, Rick chuckles. You know, the part you almost got, the fish that got away. Those are my favorite stories, the agent says. Tell me. Rick has had to tell this shaggy dog story so much he's reduced it down to its basic elements. Swallowing his resentment, Rick plays the part that's a little out of his own range. A humble actor. Well, Rick begins, Apparently, at the same time that John Sturgis offered McQueen the role of Hiltz, 
the Cooler King in The Great Escape, uh, Carl Foreman, referencing the, his, the powerhouse writer-producer of The Guns of Navarone and The Bridge on the River Kwai, was making his directorial debut with a film called The Victors, and offered McQueen one of the lead roles, and apparently McQueen va- vacillated so much, Sturges was forced to draw up a list of possible replacements for the character, and apparently I was on that list. Marvin asks, who else was on the list? Four names on the list, Rick, Rick asks. Me and three Georges, Peppered, Maharis, and Chakiris. Well, Marvin enthusiastically assists. Out of that list, I can totally see you getting it. I mean, if Paul Newman was on the list, maybe not. But the fucking Georges? Well, McQueen did it, Rick shrugs. So what does it matter? No, Marvin insists. It's a good story. We can see you in the role. The Italians will love it. Marvin Schwartz then explains to Rick Dalton how the genre film industry in Italy operates. McQueen won't work with the Italians, no matter what. Fuck the fuck. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. McQueen won't work with the Italians, no matter what. Fuck the fucking wops. That's what Steve says. Tell him to go get Bobby Darren. That's what fucking Steve says. He'll work for nine months in Indochina with Robert Wise, but won't work two months in Chinichetta with Guido DeFazzo or for any amount of money. If I were in Steve's position, I wouldn't waste my time in a shitty wop westerner either, Rick thinks to himself. Marvin continues, Dino De Laurentiis offered to buy him a villa in Florence. Italian producers offered him half a million dollars and a new Ferrari for 10 days' work on a Gino Lollobrigida Brigida picture. Then Marvin adds, it as, an, as an aside, not to mention the pretty much for sure Lollobrigida pussy to go along with it. Rick and Marvin laugh. Well, that's a different story, Rick thinks. I'd make any movie ever made if I thought I could fuck Anita Ekberg. But, Marvin says, that just makes Italians want him more. So even though Steve always says no, Brando always says no, and Warren Beatty always says no, the Italians keep trying. And when they can't get him, they settle. They settle, Rick repeats. Marvin illustrates further. They want Marlon Brando. They get Burt Reynolds. They want Warren Beatty. They get George Hamilton. As Rick endures Marvin's career postmortem, he can feel the burning, stinging sensation of tears starting to build behind his eyeballs. Marvin's obliv- Marvin, oblivious to Rick's anguish, finishes, I'm not saying the Italians don't want you. I'm saying the Italians will want you. But the reason they want you is because they want McQueen, but they can't get McQueen. And when they finally realize they're not going to get McQueen, they're going to want a McQueen they can get, and that's you. The glaring, brutal honesty of the agent's words shock Rick Dalton as much as if Marvin had slapped him across the face as hard as he could with a a dripping wet hand. However, from Marvin's perspective, this is all good news. If Rick Dalton was a popular leading man in studio features, he wouldn't be having a meeting with Marvin Schwartz. Besides, it was Rick who asked to meet Marvin. It's Rick who wants to extend his leading man career in feature films rather than playing bad guy du jour on television. And it's Marvin's job to explain to him that the realities of a possible opportunities of a film industry he doesn't know shit about. An industry that Marvin is an acknowledged expert in. And Marvin's expert opinion, Rick Dalton, being like, being like one of the biggest movie stars in the whole wide world, is a wonderful opportunity for an agent who places name American talent in Italian motion pictures. So, he's understandably puzzled when he notices tears running down Rick Dalton's cheeks. What's the matter, kid? The startled agent asks. You crying? An upset and embarrassed Rick Dalton wipes at his eyes with the back of his hands and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Schwartz. I apologize. Marvin grabs a box of tissues off his desk and offers it to Rick, consoling the weepy thespian. 
Sorry, nothing. We all get upset every once in a while. Life is hard. Rick yanks out two Kleenexes from the box with a harsh, ripping sound. As macho as he can muster under the circumstances, he wipes his eyes with the tissue paper. I'm okay now, just embarrassed. Sorry about this humiliating display. Display? Martin snorts. Are you, what are you talking about? We're human people. Human people cry. It's a good thing. Rick finishes wiping away the witness and puts a phony smile on his face. See? All better. Sorry about that. Sorry about nothing, Marvin admonishes. You're an actor. Actors have to be able to access their emotions. We need our actors to cry. Sometimes that facility comes at a cost. Now tell me, what's the matter? Rick composes himself and then says after a gulp of oxygen, It's just I've been doing this for over ten years, Mr. Schwartz, and it's a little hard to sit here for all that time and come face to face with what a failure I've become. Coming face to face with how I ran my career into the ground. Marvin doesn't understand. What do you mean, failure? Rick looks across the coffee table and tells the agent sincerely, You know, Mr. Schwartz, once upon a time, I had potential. I did. You can see it in some of my work. You can see it on Bounty Law, especially when I had solid guest stars. When it's me and Bronson, when it's me and Coburn, me and Meeker, me and Vic Morrow. I had something. But the studio kept putting me in flicks with faded old fucks. But me and Chuck Heston? That'd be different. Me and Richard Winbark, me and Mitchum. Me and Hank Fonda, that'd be different. And in some of the movies, it's there. Me and the Meeker and Tanner. Me and Rod Taylor and McCluskey. Shit, even me and Glenn Ford in Hellfire, Texas. But by that time, Ford didn't give a fuck no more. But he had looked as strong as hell, and we looked good together. So yeah, I had potential. But whatever I had, that prick Jennings Lang at Universal pissed it away. Then the actor exhales a defeated, dramatic breath and says to the floor, Hell, even I pissed it away. He looks up and meets the eyes of the agent. I totally pissed away a fourth season of Bounty Law because I was done with TV. I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to catch Steve McQueen. And if he could do it, I could do it. And if during the entire third season I hadn't been an uncooperative pain in the ass, we would have sailed into a fourth season and we could have all done well and all parted friends. Now Screen Gems hates me. Those goddamn Bounty Law producers are going to hold a grudge against me for the rest of their lives. And I deserve it. I was a prick on that last season. I let everyone goddamn know I had better places to be than this fucking pipsqueak TV show. Rick's starting to get teary-eyed again. Doing that show, Bingo Martin. I hated that prick, Scott Brown. And I was never as bad as him. You can ask the actors I work with. You can ask the directors I work with. I was never as bad as him. And I've worked with pricks before. But the reason this prick got to me, I saw how ungrateful he was. And when I saw that, I saw myself. He looks at the floor again and says with sincere self-pity, Maybe getting the snot wiped out of me by the season's new swing and dick is what I got coming. Marvin listens to the whole ex- exposition and burst forth <laughs> that burst forth from Rick Dalton with his mouth closed and his ears open. After a moment, the agent says, Mr. Dalton, you're not in the f- first young actor to land a series and fall under the spell of hubris. In fact, it's a common ailment out there. And look, look at me. Rick raises his eyes to his agent's eyes. Marvin finishes. It's forgivable. Then Marvin smiles at the actor. The actor smiles back. But, the agent adds, it does require a bit of reinvention. What do I have to reinvent myself as, Rick asks. Marvin answers, somebody humble. Hollywood, 1969. You should have been there. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a novel by Quentin Tarantino. A Harper perennial paperback. And uh, that's definitely it for today's show. It's definitely gone way over time. 
But I hope that you enjoyed it. A little dramatic reading. I have to throw a little fiction in there sometimes. Uh, I'm working on it. And uh, now... Let's see... All right, so uh, yeah, this has been uh, episode 18 of For All Time. It was a, a wild diversion from normal. I hope you enjoyed it. Go back and listen to some other episodes. Uh, it doesn't really have an exact format, but I love doing it. And uh, my name is Don Johnson. You know, I aim for one hour and ten minutes every time, and I massively overshoot it. And I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. And if you're not, I'm still going to do it this way anyway. So, uh, you know... I hope you have a good evening wherever you are. Don't forget to call the number 505-557-7932. Leave a voicemail. And uh, maybe one day we'll come back to those. Thank you. Everybody